Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. I want to talk about uh, this idea of, of darkness and... You know, darkness, in, as, as we understand it, just in, in everything, in, in Torah, but certainly in, in, in music, in, in poetry, in, in everything. Darkness is, is sort of like the, the absence of light, um, which is an interesting question, because is, is darkness, from a spiritual standpoint, the absence of light? Well, it's not, believe it or not. So, so you see, we make a mistake. We think that that the the that the world begins with with the following words: um, "Let there be light." In other words, that implies something very strongly. "Let there be light" implies that the that the the starting point of creation was darkness, and then God said, "Let there be light," and then there was light. But but really, it's all about darkness until God said, "Let there be light." That's what we think, but that's not true. Because the world, before the world was created, all there was was God. And one of the names of God is Or Ein Sof, which means light without end. Which means that the starting point of everything is actually light, great light. And then comes the world. God wants to create an environment where we have free choice. So God creates darkness. Darkness is a creation. Darkness is something that covers light. Darkness is not the absence of light. There is no such thing as the absence of light. Even in the darkest place, you have light. Darkness is something that was created to give us free choice in the face of light. But light never goes away. So so that's, that's a very important concept, especially since we're at Hanukkah time, which is all about light. But not just light, light inside the darkness. And not just light inside the darkness, but the miraculousness of how light can appear even in the darkest time. But if you understand the basic premise that light never goes away, then somehow we've got a better view of reality and we've got a better idea of this miracle itself. You see, a lot of people want proofs for God. And God deliberately made the world in such a way where he can't be proven. That's something that people have to understand. You see, and, and, and one of the points that just, I've never heard anyone else say this, and, and so I just keep on sharing it periodically because, anyway, I have to. It's the idea that people think that because God chose to create a world where he can't be proven, that was his choice. People misinterpret that. People think, God is weak. Here, here's the logic. No, no one articulates it this way, but this, this is what people think. Here, here's, here's, what, here, here's how they reason it out. They say, if God, God can make the whole world, right? And yet, he can't show me that he exists. I guess he's not strong enough. <laughs> what, what's the matter with God that he can't prove to me that he exists? He must be weak. And then people think, again, none of this is actually articulated. Then people think, if God's so weak, why should I serve him? Who needs a weak God? Right? 
The whole premise of God is that he's all-powerful. So if he's weak, then uh, what do I need any of this for? See, but, but God values something beyond all this. God values our exercise of free choice and choosing the right thing in the face of darkness, in the face of not knowing. That, that's what God wanted. God has in the spiritual realms like angels who like see his presence and can't do the wrong thing. Even if they wanted to do the wrong thing, they can't do the wrong thing because his presence is so openly apparent. But God had this amazing idea. What if I create a realm filled with darkness where people aren't even sure that I exist? And then will they serve me? That was God's idea. That's where we're at. And you can't understand anything about your life and you can't understand anything about this world unless you know that basic premise. Okay. So now, I want to share with you something that, that, that I've been thinking about that, that, that I think is, well, it's been, it's been inspiring me. Um, and th- and that's, that's the following thought. We, we, have, we have this spiritual rule, interesting rule, by the way, which is that God's presence doesn't descend below ten tfachim. That's a, that's a biblical measure. It means a hand's breadth. Okay, so if you were to sort of like make a fist, so the, 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 the distance from your pinky to your forefinger would be a hand's breadth. And if you pile ten of those on top of each other, that would be ten tfachim, ten hand's breadths. Okay? So, so that's the height of the, that is the height of the ark that held the tablets of the Ten Commandments in the Holy of Holies. Okay? Now, on top of that were these two golden angels, right? And they had their wings breath. And in between where their wings met, there was a little opening. And when Moshe would go into the Holy of Holies, in between the wings of angels. Isn't that, isn't that incredibly poetic? But that's, that, this was the reality. In between the wings of these golden angels is where Moshe would hear God's voice. And the Kruvim, that was the name of these special angels, the Kruvim were also ten hands breaths. Okay? So we say that, that since that's where God's voice came, that's basically... The, 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 the lowest that God's revealed presence would, would descend on earth. So there would be kind of like a, a little space below that. Um, but then comes Hanukkah. On Hanukkah, it's actually considered ideal to light the menorah below ten hands breaths. Actually, even a lot of holy people put the menorah on the floor. Like you would think, maybe that would be an act of disrespect, putting the menorah, that's kind of a holy thing, and you're putting it on the floor. But that's actually considered ideal. Why? Because the idea is that the light of Hanukkah descends all the way, all the way down into the bottom of the darkness. So, what... How are we going to understand all this? All this sounds very, very technical, right? 
but there are very, very powerful messages being communicated in this, in this way. Because, see, this is how the rabbis talk. A lot of times they, they talk in code. So, so we have to sort of unpack it and figure out what's being said over here. So, you see, we have the revealed and we have the hidden. We have the outside and we have the inside. These are like very, very strong concepts in terms of how we interact with ourselves, how we interact with others, how we interact with the world, and how God interacts with us. The inside and the outside, the revealed and the hidden. And what those ten tfachim, with that space, right, that low, low space, right, which is in the darkness, which is in the, in the area where God's presence doesn't descend, except it does descend there, right, in certain times, right, that would be sort of the category of the hidden or of the inside. Okay? So let's put it another way. I told you that when Hashem, when God would speak to Moshe, it would be through those, that little opening through the wings of the two angels on top of the holy ark that held the, the tablets of the covenant. So, so that would be, so to speak, the, the lowest place that we would hear the voice of God. But, but what about underneath that? What happens underneath that? How does God communicate to us underneath that? So I'd like to express it in the following way. God is still communicating with us, but in an unspoken way. In other words, if those ten tfachim, right, that, that more elevated, that more elevated measure, that, that, that higher height is where God speaks to us, right, through the wings, Below that, God is still speaking to us, but he's speaking to us in an unspoken way. Meaning to say he's communicating with us, but not with words. Or, to put it into the language that we were using, he's still communicating with us, but not in a revealed way, in a hidden way. Okay, not on the outside, but on the inside. But the communication doesn't stop. So let me let me make it clear, and and we can go we can go deeper. <coughs> Since this is a special teaching for Hanukkah, where do you see it on Hanukkah? What happened was, where do you see this communication? Because the communication of Hanukkah was not on the level of prophecy. Because at that time, there was no prophecy. So I'm going to tell you something about Hanukkah that most people don't know. That's really amazing. And you'll see how this fits into what we've been developing up until now. So here's what most people think. Most people think that there was um, the miracle of the Hanukkah lights. And everyone saw this. This was an amazing thing that there was one jar of oil that was supposed to last one day, but it lasted eight days. So most people think that after those eight days, we got together and we said, this is a new holiday, 
We're going to commemorate this miracle forever, and it's called Hanukkah, and we're establishing it right now. This is what most people think. And there's an amazing, amazing difference. What happened? You ready? What happened was, after the miracle occurred, the holiday was not declared. One year later, one year later, Hanukkah rolled around again, and the people in the Holy Temple said to each other, do you feel that? And they're like, yeah, I feel it. Do you feel it? I feel it. And they said, you know what? The light, spiritually speaking, the light of the miracle has returned. And this is a sign that this is a day that will be celebrated for all times. And so they initiated and commemorated and made part of the Holy Calendar, Hanukkah, one year after the miracle, because they felt the light returning. It shows you how that idea of the, the inside and the hidden all of a sudden now is becoming revealed, or, or how God is communicating to us in a time of darkness. But one of the messages, remember, historically speaking, of all the holidays on the Jewish calendar, Hanukkah was the very, very last one. Now listen to this. You want to, you want to hear something amazing? We have 613 mitzvahs, and then the rabbis added seven more mitzvahs. Okay, on a good day I can say the seven. Let's see if I can... I'll roll the dice here, see if I can do all seven. It's Hanukkah. That was the last of the seven, by the way. Hanukkah, Purim, candle lighting, meaning Friday night candle lighting, blessings before foods, Hallel, Eruv, and Hallel. Did I say Hallel already? Ooh. Okay. I, well, that's six out of seven. That, that gets me a very small stuffed animal. <laughs> or probably just the opportunity to buy another ticket and try again. <laughs> but anyway. Um, Hanukkah was the last of those seven. Hanukkah was the last of those seven. Oh, I know what the seventh is. Washing hands before bread. Okay, now I got a slightly larger stuffed animal. <laughs> okay, so, so that's, that's, that's the seventh of them. But, but Hanukkah was the, the, the seventh one added, the, the, the last one added. Now, you have 613 commandments from the Torah, seven from the rabbis. That adds up to 620. 620 is a very interesting number. Um, If you look at the Ten Commandments, it has 620 letters. Very interesting that, that, because really, one of the commandments, one of the 613 commandments is listen to the rabbis. (laughs) That interesting? So that the Ramban says that every Derabanan is actually a Deraisa, meaning every, uh, every instruction from the rabbis is actually as though God had said it in the Torah itself. Okay, so that's an overlap. But anyway, you see that this extra seven is anticipated in the 613 by the fact that the Ten Commandments itself has 620 letters, right? Which is the 613 plus the seven. But on an even more spiritual level, 620 is the number, is the word keter, which means crown, 
which sits all the way at the top, right? So Hanukkah is the 620th commandment, which is Keter, which is, which is the crown. And of course, in terms of sort of the cartography of the heavens, if you will, right? Keter is that sphere which is at the, the top of the top of the top of the heavens, okay? So that's Hanukkah, meaning to say that light of Keter is coming all the way down. And we have this idea that our menorahs are actually a, a, a channeling down of the original light of creation. Now, you see this hinted at in, in an amazing way because Hanukkah falls on the 25th of Kislev and the 25th word of the Torah is or, which means light. And it's not just talking about the light of the sun, it's before the sun was created. It's talking about the original light of creation, the Or Haganus, this light that was hidden away, just like the Hanukkah light was hidden away, right? So you have the, all this amazing stuff going on. But anyway, the idea is that, that this light is returning because it was one year after the miracle that the rabbis instituted the holiday of Hanukkah. This idea that communication, even in darkness, divine communication, even in exile, is ongoing through the generations. And Reb Shlomo put it this way, and it's, he's going to say it better than I've said it by far. You ready for this? He says, Do you believe that God is in an ongoing conversation with the world. Like, the phraseology there, it just blows me away. Do you believe that God is in an ongoing conversation with the world? You see, because if you, if you do believe that, and, and, and we very much believe that, remember, God, we say, is renewing all of existence, all of creation, every single moment, right? And the, the image that I always like to, to, to use to explain that idea is, you know, if you remember old film strips, like old film strips, it was like a still photo, and then underneath that, another still photo, and underneath that, another still photo, and underneath that, another still photo. But when you ran it together in a projector, it had the illusion of continuity, but they were separate frames. And so that's the idea that God is continually creating and recreating existence around us, a moment at a time, a moment at a time. But because God is so masterful, they flow together as though it's like a, an ongoing film, right? But they're separate moments. And if you know that, you know one of the secrets of creation, which is that every single moment is a new beginning. Like we were saying by Brachis, that God created the world out of beginnings. You see that every single moment is a distinct creation. And that, you see, let me tell you how to use this in a, in a practical way, this idea. Rabbi Nachman says that, you know, and all of us experience this, sometimes multiple times a day, sometimes you just get so overwhelmed and you say, I, I can't do it. 
or I just I I just I got to stop or whatever it is. So Rabbi Nachman says that when you get overwhelmed like this, you you go like this. You know what? I'm going to begin again right now. <laughs> I'm going to begin again right now. And I, I've done this. It works. It works. And, the, and the, 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 the question is, why should that work? And the reason why that works is because you're actually tapping into the truth of creation. Because the world really is made out of beginnings. So if you say, I'm going to begin again right now, you actually are sort of like getting right back into the loop of creation. Right? That's, that's an amazing thing. Okay. So I want to get back to this idea of God revealing himself in the darkness, in this, in this area below Tentfachim, in this area where, normally speaking, the divine presence doesn't descend all the way down to. And the idea that we light the menorah on the floor, right? Precisely in that place of darkness, we light it up. So what, what's, what's going on with all this stuff? So, so we have a very famous question. And it's from the Beis Yosef. And they say there's over a hundred answers to this question. Okay? And, and it goes like this. Once you hear the question, it's such a delightful question. Right? Here's the question. How... How many days do we celebrate Hanukkah for? So everybody knows the answer to that. Eight days. Okay, great. And what do we call it? We call it the the miracle of lights. Okay, great. Okay. So what's the next step? How much oil was there? There was oil for one day. So that's normal. But wait a second. That means that the miracle was only for how many days? (laughs) For seven days. (laughs) So if the miracle was only for seven days, why are we celebrating eight days of Hanukkah? Do you hear the question? This, is, this question has delighted minds for hundreds of years. <laughs> People coming up with more and more explanations. What is that missing miracle? Okay, so I'll give you some of the... the, the the, you know, like if we were playing Family Feud, these would be the answers that are at the top, okay? These are the ones that, that pop into everyone's minds, you know, like right away. One is that we found the oil. One that there was even oil to find, okay? Those are two very popular answers. Another very popular answer, that there was a simultaneous war that was being waged, where, you know, it was a small band of guerrilla fighters against the most powerful military, you know, um, you know, country in the world at that time, the Assyrians. And, and, and there was a great military victory. That was miraculous. Okay, these are the top answers. I'll give you some more, some, 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 some lesser known answers now. How about the fact that we even wanted to look for the oil? How about the fact that we didn't give up? That's... That's interesting, right? You see, I'm going to tell you something, and if you haven't heard this before, it's a very, very surprising piece of information. We could have lit with impure oil, according to Jewish law. This is according to Jewish law. 
Not, all right, whatever, just lay with whatever you got. Not that. According to Jewish law, we were permitted to light with impure oil. But the people at that time were so holy that they said, how could it be that we're going to light the menorah? We're rededicating the entire base of Migdash. The the Greeks were literally sacrificing pigs in the base of Migdash. Can you imagine? In the holy temple. So, So they cleaned it all out. And they were like, we're going to clean it all out and we're not going to use like holy oil? How, it doesn't make any sense to us. And I'm telling you that the idea that that idealism in its highest, holiest way could still exist in this context, that in itself was a miracle. Okay. So... So I want to go deeper, though. One of the answers, and I think maybe it's my favorite answer. Remember, we've got one day of lighting according to normal, the normal rules of nature, and then seven miraculous days of lighting. And yet, we celebrate eight days of Hanukkah. Really, it was only a miracle for seven days. So what is that missing miracle? So here's another popular answer, and, and I think my favorite one which is, who says oil has to light? <laughs> we're, we're starting with this, with, this, with this presumption of what reality is. Right? But who made up the rules of reality? <laughs> the rules of reality are all divinely authored. Who says oil has to light? That nature is a miracle. That, that's the teaching. Nature itself, the fact that anything works, that in itself is a miracle. You know, I often like to say, and, and I think this is very meaningful to me, our prayers are being answered all the time. We're just not praying them. God is answering unprayed prayers all of the time. And I'll give you an example. You're, 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 you're ready to go to work, say, or you're ready to start the day, whatever it is. You, 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 you leave the house and you go to your car, right? Did you pray that your car shouldn't have been stolen while you were sleeping? <laughs> Probably nobody prayed that. And yet your prayer was answered. <laughs> Your car was not stolen. <laughs> there it is. Then you put your key in the car and you start your car. The most normal thing in the world. Did you pray that my battery shouldn't be dead this morning? <laughs> no one prayed that. And yet God answered that prayer that you didn't pray. <laughs> and you can go on and on and on with that logic. Right? 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 How could it? Can you know? Reality itself is so far out. Right now, we're spinning on a globe, a giant piece of rock, at thousands of miles an hour. How could it be that we're not flying off this planet (laughs) at this moment? We look at each other like, "Oh yeah, I'm sitting in a chair. You're sitting in a chair. That guy's standing up." 
We should be flying off the planet into deep space where you can't breathe and will suffocate and die in a matter of moments. But no, it's cool, you know, I'm just kind of walking. It's my thing, you know. <laughs> right? Nothing makes sense. Nature is a miracle. Nature is a miracle. And so, so this is God communicating to us in an unspoken way. This is the idea of the divine communication, right? We said the ten hand breaths up, that's where the voice of God appeared to Moshe, but that's as far as the divine presence in a revealed way descends to earth. And then you've got this like this gap underneath. Well, what's going on in that gap? God is still talking to us, but he's still he's talking to us in this unspoken way. Right? Like like in ways that we're not flying off the planet, but you gotta you gotta use your mind to figure that out. See, let me tell you the problem that everybody everybody makes. We're born in the middle. We're born in the middle, and we think that we're born at the start. There's so much that goes on before we're even born. And we have to take like 10 steps back to appreciate the construct that we're enmeshed in. The example that I always like to, to give, because this is, this is a big idea, but it's important. I heard from Rabbi Hanuk Teller. He says, you know, sometimes you see people who are like, like socially, they're, they're like behaving in really bizarre, weird ways. Like, like for instance, he says that he was at, at, at the bank and someone was like carrying on and arguing with the teller and all the rest. And he says when, when instances like that happen, he always says to himself, act two, act two. That's how he reminds himself. So what does that mean? What's that code? So imagine you walk into a theater production and you walk in in the middle of the play you walk in the middle of act two and you've got two people on stage yelling at each other and you think they're maniacs what are they yelling at each other for well you you, you missed the entire first act you, you you missed everything leading up to this argument didn't you so now you see two people acting in strange ways and 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 you think that that's the story that's not the story the story happened way before that you know, we believe, Jews believe in reincarnation. Most likely, all of us have been here not only before, but several times before now. This life that we're leading right now is actually probably right in the middle of our lives that we've led. Sometimes, like, strange things happen to us, probably all the time. Some of them, they seem so out of the blue, we can't wrap our minds around them. Some of them are basically soul fixings from previous lifetimes. Because this life, we're, this is already the middle of the story. How about the fact that we, we, we see a world that's so broken? 
And we think, well, wait a second, what kind of God makes such a broken world? What do I, I want to serve a God who makes such a broken world? What do, what do I need a God like that for? But what about if we take 10 steps back and we say, wait a second, God made us partners with him, put us in this unfinished world in order to be partners with him to perfect the world. Then all of a sudden we see the brokenness of the world, not as an insult to us or as a punishment to us, but as this incredible opportunity and maybe the reason why we were created to begin with. So we see brokenness and we roll up our sleeves and we say, okay, let's fix it. I'm here for a reason. That's there for a reason. Okay, let's, let's figure out what we can do. But, but all of this comes from, from an appreciation that we're, we're in the middle. We're in the middle of this story. But then you have to use your seichel. You have to use your, your, your mind, your intelligence to step back and you go, okay, what story is being told? Where am I in the telling of the story? And now what's my role at this point in the story? This is wisdom. So now I want to say, let's go even deeper. What is this idea that, that again, we've got the, you can imagine the Holy of Holies, right? Got the golden Ark of the Covenant. Got these two golden angels, like, on top of it wings and in between where the wings meet is this space where we hear where Moshe hears the voice of God this ongoing communication and we say okay that's as far as the divine presence descends by the way if you want to see this in the Gomorrah it's in Gomorrah Sukkah page 5a but below that we're now in the realm where God communicates but not through the spoken revealed way You see, we have our souls, but we also have our bodies. And the idea is that the the mitzvahs themselves, they don't just elevate the soul. They elevate the soul, but they also purify the flesh. You know, it says in the Gomorrah, and, and people have found this over the years. There are different amazing stories about this, where People have dug up bodies, and even long after the bodies have been buried, like a hundred years or whatever it is, like after the bodies have been buried, there's still flesh. Like the person still looks like they had just been buried. This is by very holy people, and this has been, been observed. I've heard a lot of stories about this. It says in the Gomorrah that envy rots the bones. Envy rots the bones. So if a person can live a life where they're not envious, where they're not jealous of other people, this is something that actually makes your flesh holy. Do do you understand? I'll tell you something. It's a a total tangent, but I'm just telling you this because it blew my mind when I heard it. It's a a podcast uh, on This American Life. And they're, they're talking about, um, I think it's called Digging Things Up. If you just Google This American Life and the word digging, you'll, you'll find this. 
In places in Greece, now what, what's Hanukkah about? Hanukkah is about the victory over the Greeks. See, because what, what, what are the Greeks? What are the Greeks all about? They're about beauty, and we like beauty. Torah is also into beauty, but beauty that's married with holiness, right? Like I heard Rabbi Benjamin Blech, he, he said something I thought that was super cool. He said, the Greeks were into the holiness of beauty, whereas Torah is into the beauty of holiness. Interesting. When you hear stories about the tzaddikim, you, you feel like, you feel in a, in a visceral way the beauty of holiness. Okay? So, so in Greece today, you ready for this? Something that was shocking to me, and I think would be shocking from, for people from, from many different religious backgrounds, they have run out of burial space in Greece. And I did not hear, this is from, from This American Life, which is not a quote-unquote religious podcast, okay? It's just telling, you, just telling you as it is, okay? They've run out of burial places in Greece. Therefore, when someone buries their loved one, you've got four years, and then you've got to dig them up. And this particular story, which I just heard a couple of weeks ago, is a, a, a woman is going with her parents back to Greece. An American woman is going back with her parents back to Greece to dig up her father's mother. And she's recording this journey, okay? And... And she says that there's this thing, and she said it in, in Greek. I, I don't speak Greek, so I, I, I can't tell you what, it, what I had to say it in the original. But she says everyone is wishing them before they go to the, the, um, to the, to the cemetery is, is blessing them with this blessing, right? And she translated the blessing, and it was that the, that the body should have melted, that it should have melted away. All right, that's a very poetic way of saying a very gruesome reality, which is that people are digging up their loved ones and there are chunks of flesh attached to the bone still. So the, as a blessing, they're blessing them that when you dig up your mother, <laughs> there shouldn't be chunks of her flesh attached to the bones. Can you imagine? And so they, they take out the head, they, have, they dig for a while, the person takes out the pers- the, 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 her grandmother's head, and it's covered in hair, and she said it looked like a coconut. And then they're digging out more and more bones, and they're laying them out, kind of like to kind of form a skeleton off to the side of the, the gravesite itself. And they're finally digging till they get to two socks, right? Like what you put on your feet. So this is done by design, that you put socks on the corpse. Why? Well, because there are a lot of small little bones in the, in the feet. So this way they're all collected. 
But when you get to the socks, you know you've finished digging up the body. So it's a very practical kind of measure. Anyway, this concludes our aside. <laughs> but I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I, I didn't distort one thing. And if you want to listen to the original, it's filled with more information and all the rest. But that, 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 those, are, those are the essentials of this story. Okay? Um, but the idea is, if you do the mitzvahs, you can make your flesh holy. It's not just that the soul is elevated. The flesh is also elevated. And if you think about it, that's, a, that's an important concept. Let me tell you why. Because, you see, when we look at the world, we have to look at the entirety of the world as, as, as the domain of holiness. You know what I'm saying? In other words, let's say you have a bottle of, of like, juice, Right? It's not just about the juice, it's also about the bottle. Do you understand? Like, like, like everything, everything has sparks of holiness in it. Certainly our flesh has sparks of holiness in it. Certainly. There's no, there's no question about it. And I'm telling you that it's been, it's been observed, it's been documented, that, that the flesh doesn't rot. And one of the secrets of that is is not being envious. That's apparently that's 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 what the Gomorrah says. Okay, I'll tell you just from from my life. One of the things I was privileged to hear just from anyone, but it, it was from my father, and it was at the end of his life. He said to me, with a full heart, he said, "I'm not jealous of anyone." Like. I mean, I never ever heard anyone say those words in my life. And it was my father at the end of his life. I'm not jealous of anyone. I'm glad I don't live in Greece. <laughs> or maybe it's, maybe that would be an interesting experience. You know, you just kind of pick them up, put them in a chair, wheel them off. <laughs> well, listen, since, since I told that, I'll tell you something else. I heard this from Rabbi Beryl Wine. The laws in Judaism of ex- exhuming, that means to dig up a body, uh, someone are very, very strict. Okay? Um, it's, it's really discouraged to dig up a dead body. Really, really discouraged. Even if you have something holy in mind, like um, let's move this body to Israel. Right? Like you might have something holy in mind. Even then... It's, 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 you have to consult a rabbi, but, but, but it's, odds are you're not going to be allowed to do it. And I heard this explanation, which is a wild explanation, why it's, it's so, um, why, why, why Torah is so strict about not digging up dead bodies. You ready for this? Because, you know, one of the, one of the beliefs of Judaism is and by the way, this is not a mystical belief. This is this is normative Judaism. What I'm telling you, this is Judaism 101 right now. Is we believe in the end of days, in the resurrection of the dead. This is going to be a, a widespread thing, you know. And and if you 
if you open up a coffin, there's, there's a little piece of the soul, like the soul is basically in heaven, but there's a little piece of the soul that stays down um, with, the, with, with the bones, with the body. And the person thinks when you uncover the coffin that the time of Mashiach has come, that the great redemption has come. And when the soul realizes that you're just moving it to bury it again, it, it experiences a tremendous pain. And so to spare, look how Judaism is so sensitive, to spare the dead, the long dead person, a moment of trauma, really. They make it very, very strict that that, that, that shouldn't happen. And interesting. Okay. So, 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 so let's, let's get back to the idea of how God communicates to us in the darkness in unrevealed ways. So sometimes God communicates to us through our minds, but sometimes God communicates to us through our bodies. And, and I'll tell you what I mean by this. So the best example that I know, I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Ishbitzer Rebbe. See, if you were to look at me standing here, or look at each other, whatever it is, and I were to ask you, what is the tallest part of my body? So probably what you'd say is my head, right? You look at each other, you'd say, okay, your head is the tallest part of your body. But now, look at, look, I'm raising my arms over my head. <laughs> and now, now you give a different answer, right? You say, oh, wait, 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 it's not your head. Your hands are the tallest part of your body. Your hands reach the highest. In other words, there's a part of you, and again, this is a very deep idea. There's a part of you which understands beyond even what your mind understands. And the example that Reb Shlomo gave was that, and everyone I think can relate to this, have you ever walked down the street and you decide just to turn a corner? You don't even know why. You just decided to turn a corner and you run into an old friend? So that's an example of your body knowing even though your mind didn't know. So this is the idea of how God communicates to us sometimes below the tent fachen, during in that area where the Shekhinah doesn't descend, in that, in that area that we relate to as lack of prophecy or darkness, even in those places God is communicating to us. But sometimes he's communicating to us in this very deep way on the level of our body. So now how can you how can you access that? And that's again through living a life of Torah, through living a life of mitzvahs, you're able to refine yourself so that you sort of become a a lightning rod, right? Where you're able to to intuit where to go even when you don't know where to go. So, this is called Imunas Evarim, which is a very interesting way of phrasing it, which means 
Emunas means the faith of the limbs. Isn't that interesting that your, your body can have faith. Usually we relate the concept of faith just to the soul or to the mind. But the idea that there's Emunas Evarim, that your limbs can move in the right way because they are also being a vessel for divine communication. So, so the example that's given for that, the classic example is in the story of the Akeda, where Isaac is, is bound on the altar. It, said that, it says that Avraham actually had to force his hand toward the knife because his limbs knew that Isaac wasn't supposed to be sacrificed even though he didn't know. But his limbs understood. So when it came to reach for the knife, Avram actually had to force his hands because his hands had a level of knowledge that he didn't have. So this is, um, this is not a simple idea. This is really the realm of spiritual masters, what I'm saying. It's a very, very high level that I'm talking about right now. But nonetheless, we have to be acquainted with these things. So... So we're never alone. We're never alone. And this is, this is, see, imagine you're, you're, you're in a dark room, a pitch black room. You can't see anyone else. So you think you're alone. When, when, when times get dark, the first thing that sets in, whether on a conscious level or an unconscious level, is a mola. But we're never alone. We're never alone. You know, I'll tell you a story, and maybe we'll just finish with this. Um, I have family in, in Mexico, and um, unfortunately, you know, they, like in Mexico City, they have, kidnappings are a semi-regular thing. They're a real thing, you know. It's a business. They, they, they kidnap you, and then they ask the family for money, and that's what it is. So I know someone who knew someone, and he heard this story from the person who was kidnapped, okay? They, 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 they put him in a room. There was a table in the room, and, uh, and he was imprisoned. He was locked up until the family ransomed him, okay? Now listen to this, something unbelievable. This person was a, you know, was a, you know, believed in God very much. And when it got completely dark in the room, when there was no light in the room, he said the following words to himself. He said, the table that's in front of me, I can't see it, but I know it's there. And even though I can't see it, I know it's there. And he said, you know what? Right now I can't see God, but I know he's there. I can't see him, but just like this table is here, but I can't see it, but I know it's there. So too, right now, I'm in a very dark place in my life. I can't see God's hand right now, but I also know that he's here. And this is our lives. This is our lives. God puts us in a place
where part of the divine plan is we're not always going to be able to see him. And not only are we not going to be able to see him, but there will be events which open, openly contradict his existence altogether. But don't make the mistake of entering into the middle of the conversation like that's the beginning of the conversation. Remember, like, like I said before, if you feel anger coming on, you have to... Oh, that was before we started the tape here. <laughs> okay, so... We have to cleanse our hearts of anger. And the more you do it, the more you'll be able to feel its approach. And then when you sensitize yourself to its approach, you say, not with anger, not with anger. If you start to get to a place where you aren't believing, right? Remember this story about the table. He knew the table was there. And even when it was dark, he says, right now I can't see it, but I know that it's there. When you feel disbelief approaching, Say to yourself, you know what? I'm in the middle of the conversation. I'm in the middle of the conversation. Where did this entire world come from? You see, I'll just end with this. Here's a classic middle of the conversation conversation that people have with each other. Okay? They look at the Torah, right? It looks like a book. And they say, really? Come on, give me a break. Right? And then they'll make a decision about the existence of God or whether God's, whether there's a plan for the world, whether there's a structure for the world. They'll go, give me a break. But they're, they're entering into the middle of the conversation. To me, the, the, the greatest proof of God and I'm just talking for myself right now. For me, the greatest proof of God is, is not the Torah. The Torah is just like a, a logical extension of God's presence, as I see it. In other words, like um, I heard Rabbi Matasyahu uh, Solomon, all of Hashem, put it this way. He and his wife bought a blender, and, and they noticed that the blender came with a 32-page set of instructions. And he said... If a blender comes with a 32-page set of instructions, is it possible that the universe doesn't come with a set of instructions? Is it possible? So to me, the real conversation is not where did the Torah come from. The Torah is a logical extension of the fact that there's a world. The question is where did existence come from? Where did consciousness come from? That's the question. And to me, okay, you can come up with whatever answer you like, but to me, it, it comes from God. It has to have come from God. And then once you've got the concept of one God, is it possible that he's creating just a zoo for us to bang our heads against the wall in? There has to be some sort of divine plan. There has to be a job for us to do. So if you feel, see, I, 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 was, I was sharing with you guys that 
that when I hear a siren, a police siren, a, an ambulance, a fire engine, I pray. I pray, God, please send salvation. And I've noticed, after years and years and years of doing this, I can hear the siren from very, very far away. So, so if you feel disbelief coming upon you, the more you sensitize yourself to it, the more you'll be able to sense it from far away. And when that moment comes, just ask yourself, how is it possible that there's even a world? How is it possible that there's even a me? How is it possible that I'm even thinking these thoughts right now? You know, like I like to say, the greatest proof, if you're wondering, is there a God? The greatest proof is, in other words, we wouldn't even be here unless there was a God. So the very, the, as we're asking ourselves, is there a God? That in itself is the greatest proof that there's a God. Because if there wasn't a God, there, wasn't, there wouldn't be a me. <laughs> so, so, so my asking, where is he, in itself is a proof that he is. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.